welcome to this podcast. This is going to be about the life and times of Tim Heal. In this series of podcasts, I'm going to take you through my life from birth to retirement. I will be covering some of the major events in my life and some of the successes and failures that I've had during my lifetime. So sit back, strap yourself in, it's going to be a bit of a bumpy ride. Welcome to episode 9 of the Tim Hill Podcasts. In this episode, I'm going to take you through my deployment to Kosovo and what I did during that tour. It was a frustrating couple of months waiting to get called forward to go up to Chilwell. Chilwell is situated just outside of Nottingham and it's the Army's Training and Mobilisation Centre. But I used the time wisely and I was able to go over to Chicksands most weeks to do some work over there in the build-up to going to Kosovo. I did a lot of pre-reading of Kosovo, the culture and stuff that I needed to know to be able to help once I got there. I had access to the latest reports coming back from Kosovo and the int reports, the int sums and what the psychological operations support element was actually doing at the time and what campaigns they were working on. So by the time I eventually arrived in Kosovo, I was pretty much well read in and had a good handle on what was actually going on on the ground there. My date finally came through to go to Chilwell, and it was mid-October. I had to go to Chicksands first to get a driver to take me up to Chilwell, because you weren't allowed to take your own vehicles up there. So I arrived up at Chilwell in mid-October, and that's when they started unmucking me about. It also involved an awful lot of hurry-up-and-wait. We spent a lot of time sat around doing nothing, which was really frustrating. It was a full-on three-week package. They put you through all the basic elements, basic recruit training, effectively, putting you through military annual training tests just to bring you up to speed. I was pretty much up to speed to start with, so it's a bit like sucking eggs. But I sucked it up and I just got on with it. The whole process up at Chilwell at that time just seemed to be so disjointed. Nobody knew where they should have been, at what time they should have been at. There was people chasing around all the time. You had to go through all the different elements uh, in the first couple of days. So you had to go through medical first, and everybody had to go through the medical first because they identified people that uh, had problems that weren't fit to deploy. So they were immediately wheedled out. Once you'd got through the medical and they said you're fit to deploy, then you'd go round to the admin office and you start signing in the papers that you needed to sign to sort your payout, to sort your terms and conditions out, to sort the will out. And then it was down to the QM's department and they issued you a full set of kit. I mean a full set of kit. You got just about everything again. And this wasn't too bad, but after the fourth time of mobilising, you'd ended up with a ton of kit but more of that in future episodes in reality you could have completed the Chilwell package inside a week but I can see where they were coming from they want to get everybody up to the same level regardless of where you come from so on our package we had guys from four para going through it we had guys from the honorable artillery company and we had some special forces guys coming through so it made no real sense to muck everybody about, but they did. I should have deployed out in November, but it was decided that I wasn't going to go until early January. 
and I'll spend the time back at Chicksands learning some more stuff that I needed to know before going out there. So I ended up learning a lot about the print side of life. We had some print machines that I needed to get to know and how to service, etc, etc. And also at that time was learning how to use Photoshop and InDesign. I worked over at Chicksands right until the week before Christmas. And then I went and had Christmas and New Year's leave at home. And New Year's Eve that year was 1999. And I was all panicking about the big year 2000 that everything was going to collapse, the world was going to come to an end and all the rest of it. Well, if it had come to an end, I wouldn't have gone to Kosovo and wouldn't be doing these podcasts now, would I? Anyway, New Year's Eve, we got together with Dave and Ro and we went up on top of Epsom Downs to watch all the fireworks kicking off in London, which is quite spectacular from up there. And it was uh, a week later that I finally deployed out to Kosovo. I reported back to Chicksands the day before I was due to go to Kosovo because I had an early start and had to be at Bryce Norton for 8 o'clock the following day. I had to get transport to take me because I had to carry a weapon. I also, along with all my other kit, I had to take some stuff out for the radio station. So I was up at 4 o'clock the following morning, had a wash and shave, shower, got ready, got all my kit, met up with a driver, we went up to the armoury to draw my pistol and I stuck in the top of my day sack and we left Chicksands around about 5 o'clock and we got into Bryce Norton somewhere about half past 6, quarter 7, something like that and I booked in. Nobody said anything about handing weapons in so I've dumped all my other kit, the radio stuff that I was taking out and waited in. We got called forward and had to go through security to go into the departure lounge. Anyway, I stuck my day sack on this machine and it showed up my pistol in the top of my day sack. Anyway, they took me like a naughty little schoolboy, holding my day sack in one hand, my pistol in the other, back out round to the reception desk to hand my weapon in because apparently weapons go separate. You don't carry weapons on an aircraft. Well, I didn't know. Nobody said nothing to me about it. So that was it. I was off on my way to Kosovo. So after a few false starts, the flight to Pristina finally left around about 6 o'clock in the evening and it was a four-hour flight down to Kosovo. We arrived in Pristina pretty late at night. Nobody was actually expecting me, apparently. Managed to bag a lift up to the university building where the headquarters was and they put us up in a cellar up on a camp cot for the night. It was bloody freezing down in that cellar Fortunately, I had my big Arctic sleeping bag, so I was okay, but God, it was freezing. The following morning, I found the team boss and started to get settled in. I was actually put up in a tent. We were keeping in tents at this place, and it was minus 29 at night. And the problem was, we had these diesel heaters, and the diesel was waxing in the tube, so it was just ended up blowing out cold air. The warmest place was the kitchen and the cookhouse. It's the only place you could get any warmth in the whole place. The offices was cold, the accommodation was cold, everywhere was bloomy freezing. Essentially, my job title was driver media ops. But really, I had nothing to do with the media ops at this time. But once I got settled, one of the other lads took us on an orientation drive round the area. 
and we drove down to the radio station which was in the centre of Pristina and I gave them all the bits of kit that I brought out for them. We then went off around the local area and he just showed us some of the key points that I needed to know and where some of the other units were located that we occasionally needed to get to see. At that time, Kosovo was a multinational NATO-led peacekeeping operation and we had all nations out there. There was the Americans, we had Swedes, Norwegians, we had Austrians, we had the Irish army out there, there was Russians, Polish and Romanians and there was a whole myriad of other people out there as well. So the psychological support element for 19 Brigade was made up with two captains, a sergeant and three corporals, of which I was one of them. We also had three interpreters, two Serbian and one Albanian. And then there was the radio station, which was situated down in Pristina. And that was headed up by a colonel, two sergeants and a corporal. And they had about five or six interpreters or radio presenters of different ethnic backgrounds. So we had Serbians and we had ethnic Albanians and they run almost 24-7 down there. Obviously during the night they had pre-recorded music and it was run pretty much on the lines of a normal commercial radio station. So they'd have a, a breakfast show in the morning and they'd have adverts put on during the day. The adverts were what we dictated. They were messages to the local population. They had news programmes as well and then they had a call-in programme and it was fairly well established by the time we got there. And this had been a fallout from what we had in Bosnia. In Bosnia they had Radio Oxygen that had been up and running for several years and it was really popular with the locals. So we've mirrored that and we called this one Radio Galaxia. In early February of 2000 we were getting ready for a marine expeditionary unit coming in. It was a major, major American deployment by the US Marine Corps and it was called Dynamic Response 2000, DR2K as it became known. And we were doing the groundwork for this with messages going out on the radio station and we were putting adverts into the local newspapers and we were putting handbills out in all the areas that were going to be affected by this big American push through Kosovo right up to the Serbian border. It was in response to some activity that was going on in Serbia at the time. At the beginning of March, I was teamed up with an American sergeant from the Marine Corps and we were going out interviewing people in different areas. We went up to the monastery at Gratzenica and we interviewed the, the main priest up there and one of the father's big influencers in the whole area uh, to see what their response was and what we could do to help them get our message out. We also travel around the different battle groups to speak to all the PSYOPs operators in Kosovo. So we went and had a chat with the Germans. We went to Norbat, which the Telemark Battalion was just about to hand over. We went to Swebat and spoke with the Swedes. And we went to Finbat and had a chat with the Finns. So we spent a lot of time travelling around, meeting up with different people, to get their perspective on it. With me able to travel around so much as I did, I got to be known everywhere. 
and everywhere I went, it always seems to be at lunch time, which unfortunately I had to stop and have lunch. And this was a, one of the key features of my whole tour in Kosovo. I will elaborate on meals out in different places as I go through. We had a really good time with the Finns um, because we spent quite a lot of time in Finbat and they have a setup where they've got they bring their own saunas and everything. So we made excuses to go over to Finbat occasionally just to have a sauna and a chat. If you were to go south from Pristina and where we were, halfway towards Skopje was where the Americans uh, were held up and they had a massive, massive camp. Effectively, they, t they took the top off of this hill and built a camp. And we used to go down there quite a bit because they had quite a large American-led PSYOPs um, unit there. And we used to use their facilities quite often. And they also had a big PX there. And their main cookhouse was quite good because you'd just go in and help yourself to whatever you wanted. And they always, always had ice cream. So it was a bit of a treat to go down there. During March and April, there was a, a rip, a relief in place. 19 Brigade were pulling out and 7 Armoured Brigade were coming in, the Desert Rats. Uh, for me, I was the continuity. So the old Sipes support element were leaving and we got a new team in. And because I'd been in there for quite a while, I helped with the, the transition for the guys. Obviously taking them out on orientation tours of the area and where our main contacts were. At the same time as this was going on, they were building a new camp that was all going to be in porter cabins, all set up with all singing, all dancing. And we were eventually going to move into there. It got delayed and delayed a few times, but we eventually moved in there. I think probably it was around about sort of late May. And we had air conditioning. We had two men to a pod in these Corrymex. And life was quite good. And they built a new gym and everything. And I used to go to the gym every morning. And I used to be in there training alongside the new brigade commander, Brigadier Sheriff. And we quite often had a chat about uh, the ongoing situation in Kosovo at the time. There was an incident that was happening up in Podievo where the ethnic Albanians took it upon themselves to put the Albanian flag up on top of public buildings. And I was sent up there as part of a team to quell the situation down, shall we say. So I took up one of our loudspeaker systems and the scariest thing I had was I was stood in front of a very angry crowd of about 2,000 people, all shouting and screaming. And I had the, the local dignitary on my loudspeaker system trying to quell the, the situation down. And behind me was the, the baseline for the riot troops that were going to quell any problems that, that kicked off. And I was out in front of this lot. Rather scary, to say the least. The vast majority of Kosovo is based on ethnic Albanians and with small enclaves of Serbs. And one of our main tasks was to protect the Serbs at this time before what kicked Kosovo off was Serbia committed an awful lot of atrocities in Kosovo against the ethnic Albanians. Uh, this is why we went into Kosovo in the first place. So we were there to mainly protect the Serbs at this time, and they were very peaceful Serbs. 
I must admit. And one of the main areas that we were looking after was in a Swebat area of Gratzenitsa. And we used to go down there an awful lot. We produced a, what we called the, the Serb Telegraph. And it was a newspaper on an A4 sheet or A3 sheet folded in half with about four sides to it normally. And that was one of my main tasks was to print this off once a fortnight. And it was a pretty big run. I used to do about 30,000 copies. And then we'd go out and distribute it around the smaller Serb enclaves of Gratzenica, Kosovo, Polier, and Oblich. Once 7th Brigade had arrived in mass and the dust had settled and 19th Brigade had clearly all gone, it was decided they were going to do things slightly different. We had a new commander in charge of the support element who was also in charge of media ops and he decided to merge the two together, which I didn't think was such a great idea. But there you go, he did it, which meant that I ended up doing a lot more driving because the media ops side didn't have a secure fit driver. We had a, a Land Rover with a secure fit radio system in the back that had crypto on it, which encrypted your speech and radio communications. And I was the only one qualified to use it. We also had a sat phone on there. And what they would do is if there was a, a big incident kicking off, they would get in touch with the all the international press and they'd have a meeting point for them. And they would be the single point of contact for the troops that are on the ground that were dealing with any particular incident that was kicking off. And we had quite a lot of different incidents that we went to. At that time, there was the war graves that they were digging up. And I went out to several of those, which was quite a horrible thing to see. Um, and there was also other incidents that were kicking off where somebody had been murdered or something like that. So we, we were out there and we were a single point of contact for all the media hacks. So we had the likes of Christian Jennings from the, the Telegraph. We had Kate Ady came out several times. Robert Fox also came out half a dozen times. So we had lots of high-profile press people out seeing us. The funny thing that I thought at the time was how ironic that there was me, myself as a PSYOPs operator, dealing with the media. I think had they known that I was a purveyor of propaganda, lies and deception, they may have thought twice about coming out to see us. There was a French battle group up in Mitrovica, which is on the right on the border with Serbia. And they were having some trouble up there with the Serbians firing down the river straight into the middle of town. So it was a big deployment went up there to try and sort it out. And I deployed up there for a few days with the media team. So we had all the, the big press boys up there reporting on it at the time. And I was put up by the French. It's a misconception that the French have really good food. Well, these French didn't have really good food, but we had to live on it for a few days. As time went on, things in Kosovo started to settle down a bit. Things got more established. Up at the NATO headquarters at Film City, we used to go up there occasionally, and I used to go up with the boss to attend the PSYOPs meetings that were held, and all the PSYOPs teams would send their representatives to this meeting. And from this meeting... Then we got invited out to the other areas. 
and I ended up taking the boss all the way out to Petch to see the Italians and we had a fantastic couple of days out there. The Italians really know how to eat properly and where their setup was, they their headquarters, they took over an old hotel and it looks over the mountains. It was stunning. It was brilliant. And I ended up going there about three or four times during my time in Kosovo. One very memorable lunch that we went to was out at Istok in the northwest of Kosovo, where there was a, a Spanish battle group headed up by the by a Spanish cavalry regiment. And they laid on this massive paella. They dig a big pit in the ground and there's a huge, great sort of bowl thing that they fill up with it. all of this seafood and rice. And oh, it's absolutely amazing. And that was one of the best meals, other than the Italians, that I had in Kosovo. And I think the worst meal that we ever had must have been with the Russians. We visited the Russians at the APOD. They had taken over the APOD when it all kicked off and we got in there. And effectively, the Russians were running the main airstrip in Kosovo at the time, which is just outside of Pristina. Me and the boss were there this particular day and they served us up this, I don't know what it was, it was horrible. It was like pasta cooked in milk. Anyway, didn't want to offend them, but we ended up eating it and it was awful. Every other time we went to see the Russians, we made sure it wasn't at meal times. There was a time that we got invited to go and visit the Irish battle group which is, if you go down to Camp Bonstill, which is the big American base, instead of turning left for Bonstill, you turn right, and you go down there a little way, you find the Irish Army, and they laid on a Sunday lunch for us, which was pretty special, I must say. Also, in the Irish Army's area of responsibility, they had a small village up in an enclave that was miles from anywhere, there was a a traditional Catholic village and this village held a a big festival once every year and they laid on a big special spread and everything like that and the mayor of this little village invited the Irish army up there and we went along as their hosts and we enjoyed a fabulous afternoon with lots of stuff laid on for us. They had this procession through the town with this saint that they was honouring and then they laid on this magnificent spread in the afternoon for salads and meats and all sorts of things. And it was really, really good afternoon. And there was lots and lots of um, slip of its flowing. Um, I tried to stay off of it most of the time. But I was slightly inebriated when I had to drive back down to Pristina. But that was a very memorable afternoon. And they even had an Irish piper that was playing for them. It was making hell of a din. <laughs> when I first got out to Kosovo... You could get around fairly easily because there was hardly any traffic at all. As the summer of 2000 went on, the roads were getting busier and busier and busier. There was car washes popping up all over the place, along with lots and lots of stands everywhere that were selling CDs. All these CDs were obviously ripped off and they were just making a huge profit out of it without paying any royalties and lots and lots of people were buying these and and downloading the music and putting them on their their devices and stuff at the time we used to go and meet up with some of the journalists down in pristina a cafe um, just outside the main hotel down there that they used to use and we used to sit around for quite a while chatting about uh, different things and what they wanted from us and what they could expect from us 
During the summer of 2000, the Combined Services Entertainment, or the CSE shows, laid on a big show for us. They brought over Tony Hadley and his band was the, the headlining act, and they had a couple of um, comedians, and, and it was a really good show. They put it on down in Pristina itself. There was a big theatre that they used for it, and they bust everybody down there two evenings on the trot. And I was fortunate enough to be down there both evenings and had a lovely time. During my time in Kosovo, I had the opportunity on a few occasions to go up in helicopters. I had one in the winter time when I hadn't been there long, and I flew in a Canadian Griffin, which is like a Huey, but it's got four blades instead of the two. And they flew us around Kosovo, and I managed to get quite a few good video shots of the area for future use to show guys that uh, what was there and what wasn't. I also, in the summertime, I had to go off and do a job up on the border out the other side of Podievo, and I went on a Puma, and during this flight, he went into one. He was throwing the thing all over the sky, and it wasn't until we got back that uh, he told us why he was... Um, he was chucking it around quite so much. We were actually being targeted. He'd uh, had a thing come up on his system saying that uh, somebody was aiming a rocket or something at us. So he was trying to lose it. I wouldn't have gone up in it had I known. As the summer marched on, we were getting ready to change. Seven Armour Brigade were getting ready to go home and three Commando Brigade were getting ready to come in. So there's lots and lots of preparations for, for these guys coming in. We'd already had their pre-advanced party come in and start the handover. For me, it meant a lot of chauffeuring. I was taking the new guys around the area, meeting up with all the other SIPES operators, and I took them all the way out to, to Petch to see the Italians. I took them up to Mitrovica to meet the French. We met the Germans. We went all around Swebat, Finbat and Norbat over to Istok to see the Spanish, and of course down to Bonstil to meet the Americans. And I introduced them to everybody that they needed to know to be able to make a good good job of it. And at the same time, the guys in the office were showing them what campaigns we were working on, what campaigns were working, what campaigns didn't work. So the majority of the stuff that we were doing was pretty much just information operations it was just minor awareness leaflets don't be nasty to your neighbors report crime and that sort of stuff there wasn't actually at that time any real psychological operations going on throughout my time with seven arm brigade i did an awful lot of work with the scots dg and at the end of the tour i received a letter via my commanding officer from the commanding officer of the, the Scottish Dragoon Guards give me a commendation for all the work that I'd done to help them out on the tour, which was a really nice pat on the back for me. Totally, totally unexpected. So as the end of the tour was coming close for me, I managed to get together all the stuff that I'd been doing, got it all filed in, got it all written up, so I, I did a complete report of my whole tour ready for giving back to the group when I got home. So when I flew back, I was met at Bryce Norton by the team from Chilwell. 
and we were driven straight back up to Chilwell. We were up there for about three days while they demobbed us. So they took back whatever kit they needed to take back, left us with what kit we needed to keep, went through a different process. We went and had the the medicals again and we did all the paperwork up. And at the end of the three days, I had to arrange for a driver to come and pick me up from Chicksands to take me, all my kit and my weapon back down to Chicksands. And he also gave me eight weeks leave. So I went back down to the group submitted my my stuff and my report and then I proceeded on leave until the end of October. When I got home, I hadn't been home since the April when I had R&R. So I'd been away for about four months. When I walked through the front door, I had to come back outside again to make sure I'd walked into the right house. Sandra, while I was away, had had a brand new kitchen and a brand new downstairs toilet and shower completely completely changed Sandra was good at that sort of thing and within 10 minutes of being being home it had been like I hadn't been away anyway so she had saved up her leave and we'd already booked on a cruise and we had a three-week cruise that took us all the way up to Spitsbergen all the way up the Norwegian coast up to Spitsbergen back down and across to Iceland and home again fantastic three weeks when we got back off of this I went and sorted out and I bought Sandra a brand new Saab 9.3. She'd always really loved having a Saab, and I treated her. Well, that's it for this episode. I do hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we're going to go on to another operational tour to Macedonia the following year, which then led on to going to Afghanistan. So if you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends, and thank you for listening. (laughs) Thank you.